You're listening to another message from Generation City Church. <laughs> it's great to be in church this morning and it's great to be able to share the word with you. I, I think I just realized it's been about five weeks since I've shared with you. And uh, so it's good to be back up here bringing something that I believe will, will encourage you today and, and bless you. But before I get into the word, I... Um, just want to say to you, in, in the year 2000, so a little over 16 years ago, I had the privilege of visiting the country of Mozambique. And it was the first time that I'd been in Africa. I've been back a number of times since, but the first time that I had been in Africa and uh, went across and stayed with Robbie Housen, who is a missionary that we, we support here as a church. And Robbie runs a Bible school, uh, training pastors and church planters who have been sent out uh, across the nation of Mozambique, establishing churches and ministry centers and um, all kinds of practical things, uh, food programs, uh, health clinics, and and so on. And while I was there 16 years ago, I had the uh, honor of being able to give a few lectures in that Bible school and deposit something. And it was one of the early classes uh, from the launch of that Bible school. There was a young man in that class by the name of Jonas. And uh, Jonas went on and graduated and is now pastoring a church of about 200 people in the town of Beira. And it's great to have him with us today. Jonas, welcome to church. Why don't you stand up just for a moment? Fine young man. I, uh, I want that jacket. You know, the Bible does say, if your brother asks for your coat. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm going to get him up a little later in the service and uh, let you meet him. But uh, he's gone on to be one of God's trophies of ministry success and doing a great job there in Mozambique. First Kings chapter 19 this morning. Uh, I want to read to you 18 verses. So I'm going to read it reasonably quickly. Uh, and then share some things out of it. But First Kings chapter 19, verse 1, When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, May the gods strike me and even kill me, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. It's interesting, he left his servant there. Elijah didn't have a servant because he was wealthy. He had a servant because he was a prophet. And prophets back in those days had an assistant, had somebody that ran with them, ran before them, uh, did errands, set things up, prepared so that they could focus on the ministry of the word and prayer and him to leave his servant there is basically saying that he released his staff because he was about to resign the ministry. He'd had enough. So he comes to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread. 
baked on hot stones in a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more. He said, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. I've just lost my place. Where are we up to? Verse what? Verse 11. The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said to him, again, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied yet again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken down their covenant with you, torn down their altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, go back the way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Haziel will be killed by Jehu, and he who escapes Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. You, you know, I see in this story the tremendous grace and kindness and patience of God toward human weakness and frailty. I see in this story the heart of God that is so full of compassion when it comes to our human frame, when it comes to our shortcomings, when it comes to our struggles, our temptations, our trials, our tribulations, when we go weak at the knees, when the storms of life, the challenges of life, the struggles of life come across our path. I see in this passage the tremendous outpouring of God's love, care, kindness, grace, mercy, and compassion. But I also see in this story the desperate need for us to stop making our Christian life all about us. The desperate need for us to stop making our Christian walk all about what God will do for me, what God will do in me, what God will do through me, that our Christian life is all off, so often about what I will get if I follow Jesus, what I will receive if I serve Jesus, if I just surrender my life to him, this is what will unfold in my life. I, I believe that is the truth, but I believe ultimately we have to move from a place of seeing Christianity about what's in it for me and understand that we are but a small part of a very big plan to touch and impact thousands around the globe. I, I was greatly stirred 
disturbed but encouraged by Steve McCracken's message to our church two weeks ago. I've listened to that message three or four times since he brought it. I've, I've been praying it through. I've been processing it. And one of the things that he said, which I believe is so true, is that what God wants to do through our church, we won't necessarily see huge fruit of that here in this building, but we will have an impact as we reach out and stretch out beyond ourselves. But the story I've just read to you is it's an interesting account of a man of God in the middle of what seems to be a move of God, a massive, mighty, incredible move of God, but suddenly he hits the wall and has a yearning to give up, a yearning to stop and change direction and do something other than what he had been called to do. In the previous chapter, chapter 18, it's the story of the gunfight at the Carmel Corral. Who remembers that old Western? Kirk Douglas, uh, you know, gunfight at the OK Corral. It was made into a more modern movie, Tombstone with Kirk, Kurt Russell playing Wyatt Earp. It's the story of Doc Holliday and, and the, the Earp brothers fighting the Clayton gang. And it, it culminates in the old black and white movie with a gunfight at the OK Corral. And uh, it's, it's very, very dramatised in the latest Tombstone uh, edition of that movie. But in chapter 18, the verse before, we read a, a dramatic story of a man moving in the power of God's spirit like we would often yearn to move in. He stands alone on a mountain with thousands of Israelites gathered together who were wavering between two opinions. They didn't know whether to serve God who had redeemed them from Egypt or whether to keep serving Baal that King Ahab had had made the state religion. And, And they were wavering between the two opinions and he stands alone against 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of some other god that had been established, and 950 prophets he is up against, and he's got a crowd of fickle, uncommitted people watching on. But in the previous chapter, Elijah is hearing God's voice with incredible clarity. He's close to God. He's walking with God. And God is speaking to him and he's hearing the voice of God and he's responding in obedience to the directives of the Holy Spirit. And he is doing incredible things in the, in the landscape of God's people and, and representing the God of heaven who really was wanting to break in and bring hope and a future and blessing to the nation that they had lost by their disobedience and ceasing to following, follow the word of God. They were following all these other things in their day. He was, he was led by the Spirit through what was a minefield of political and spiritual mayhem. The place was a disaster. You know, we live today in what is called the postmodern world. It's not the modern world anymore. Actually, just on that note, what Margot shared about the census, Australia is not seen and known around the world today as a Christian country. You know, we would like to say, yes, Australia is a Christian country. We are not a Christian country. And, and we are now known as what, what is called a secular country. 
And so we're not a religious country at all. And, and that's why we want you to put Pentecostal up there because there are more Christians standing up for God in our nation than what is, is known in our nation and what is being reflected from our nation. And if we just read this question is optional and don't answer it, then we're actually compounding the reflection of our nation being a secular country. But he's in the middle of, of a very religious and political uh, situation where, like our, like our postmodern world, our, our postmodern world, in a modern world, we were struggling to believe in God at all. In our modern world, with, with technological advances and with, with uh, great things happening, uh, with knowledge and the increase of, of uh, uh, you know, inventions and, and, and making life supposedly easier for us with computers and the internet and, and, and communication systems and social media stuff and, and, and telecommunications and so on, we, we drifted away from a belief in God and came into that humanistic mindset that says we don't need God, we can do this on our own. But that only lasted for so long and people began to realize that deep within their innermost being, there was a hole. There was something still missing inside our soul that technology was not fulfilling. And we've moved now into a postmodern world. But the problem with the postmodern world is not in the modern world, it was, can I believe in God? No, there probably isn't such an existence. There probably isn't a being out there at all. It's just us and our, our, our brilliance making life better for ourselves. But now we've moved into an era where it's not about, can I believe in God? But which God do I believe in? Which God can I follow? Which is the right God? And, and in many ways, Elijah found himself in the same scenario as we find ourselves today. They, was, they were worshipping Baal. Some were still following Jehovah. Some were worshipping Baal. Some were worshipping Asherah. Some were following other gods at the time. And there was a plethora of various choices that they could engage in. And Elijah comes into the middle of that with God leading him, God speaking to him, him, him hearing and obeying and bringing about a tremendous revelation to the people of the presence of God. Ahab, for three years, King Ahab, for three years, had been seeking his life. Ahab, for three years, had been hunting him down. He was Israel's most wanted fugitive in his day, and nobody could find him. The hand of God's protection was upon him. They would think they'd have him, and then when they get there, he was gone. Something was happening supernatural around his life. But they had been looking for this man for three years, and the backing of God behind Elijah's ministry was demonstrative. It was outstanding. And the Lord comes to him and says, I want you to now go and present yourself to Ahab. And I want you to gather all the people of Israel together at Mount Carmel, and we're going to have a showdown. And you're going to challenge the people. How long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, then let God be God. If he is not God, then, then you make your choice. But today we're going to show you who God really is. And the Lord led him to this. And so you need to read chapter 18 yourself. I don't have, to have time to go into the whole story. But they gather on Mount Carmel, and he gets the prophets of Baal to create an altar and, and call on your God. If your God consumes your altar with fire, I will say today that your God is God. And, of course, it goes on all day. They, they cry out, they yell, they cut themselves, they go through their rituals, they do all their, their stuff that pagan religions do back then. They sacrifice their babies in the altar, all sorts of hideous things. And they did this all day. Nothing happened. 
And then Elijah stands up, and of course, the rest of the story is history. He stands up, he covers his altar with water, he drenches it, he makes it almost impossible for a fire to be ignited. He then calls fire from heaven, God comes, God obliterates the sacrifice, and the people rise up with incredible emotion and say, the Lord, he is God. You all know the story. The Lord, he is God. Yeah, there, was, there was breakthrough, there was, there was a miracle, there was, there was something took place. And at the end of that, Elijah three years before had declared, this is where he first comes on the scene, he declares for three years Ahab there will be no rain because Ahab was a wicked king. In fact, at the end of chapter 16, Ahab assumes the throne and we are told that he was more wicked than any other king that had preceded him in Israel. That's, that's not a good reputation to have. He was more wicked and he had done more evil and had done more to provoke the anger of God than any other king before him. You read that at the end of chapter 16. Then chapter 17, the Lord says, go and tell Ahab, I'm going to bring a drought and a famine on this land that will cripple you. And he does. But he says to Ahab, there will not be rain or dew for three years until I say the word. That's why Ahab was hunting him for three years. And, and Ahab calls him the troubler of Israel. But Elijah says, I'm not the troubler of Israel, my friend. You're the troubler of Israel. And so what happens is at the end of this massive demonstration on Mount Carmel where the fire of God comes down and consumes that sacrifice, he then says, Ahab, go and have lunch. While you're having lunch, I'm going to bring the rain. That's what he says. Goes onto the mountain. He prays. To, says to his servant, you know, go and look out over the sea. He looks out over the sea. Can you see anything? Nothing. So he prays again. Go and look again. Nothing. Prays again. And eventually the servant comes back and says, and you know it, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And that was enough for Elijah to know the rain's coming. And sure enough, the clouds built up on the horizon over the ocean. In came the thunderstorms and torrential rain and the famine and the drought was broken. It was a chapter of some of the most supernatural backing of God that a man of God could ever dream of. He had served faithfully. He had been faithful. He had seen the hand of God. He, he obeys the hand of God. There's a move of God. God comes through. So what happened? Because that's the end of chapter 18. And then chapter 19, we've just read. Ahab goes back to Jezebel, his wife, tells him everything Elijah has just done. And then she says, may the gods do to me and more so if I don't make your life like one of those prophets that you killed on Mount Carmel because he slaughtered them all. He said, may God do to me and kill me if I don't make your life as one of those. And then we read this man of God who had been Israel's most wanted fugitive for three years, had run. They, they were after his life. They wanted him, they wanted him on a cross. They, they were out for blood. He wasn't phased. He just kept following the Lord. But now Jezebel, the queen, simply sends out a message your life will be as one of those by this time tomorrow. 24 hours is all you've got left. The Bible tells us that fear gripped his heart and he ran. Something happened between chapter 18 and chapter 19 that caused this man of God to become absolutely desperate. What was it that happened? Let me tell you what it was. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. I, I, I would venture to say that staying faithful to the call of God 
When there is no apparent fruit, by way of changed hearts, changed lives, transformed vision, a new outlook on life, connection with heaven, if that is not happening, when you are faithful to the call, it probably is one of the most draining experiences for any of us to actually face, especially when you sense that God is in a situation and when God is moving through a situation, people excited, however, very quickly revert back to the status quo. That's discouraging. I was with a a pastor this week having lunch that I hadn't caught up with for some time and he was telling me over lunch about a notable miracle that took place in one of his Sunday services in not too recent times. It was a notable miracle. It was a, a visible miracle. People could see that God had done something. That it, was, it was undeniable. It wasn't like, I've got a headache and now it's gone. We just have to trust the person's telling us the truth, don't we? And we all have those little doubts. It's like, well, that's nice. You had a headache and now it's gone. And I don't want to under, undervalue those kinds of miracles, you know, or I had so, a pain in my side and now the pain has left. But the bottom line is, I'm not seeing anything other than you just telling me something's happened in your body and, and that's great. But this wasn't one of those miracles. This was a miracle that was obvious to everybody. Everybody saw it. Everybody experienced it. And it was a dramatic miracle of healing. And yet the pastor went on to say, yet within the short space of a week, everybody was just back to the same old, same old. Just walking the same old track, just grinding the same old grind, going the same old routine that they had gone through up until that point. And he said, it's so discouraging when you get such a notable miracle that nothing happens in the heart of God's people. I have believed for a long time, miracles will not change your life. Miracles and the supernatural and the presence of God coming will not change your life. How do I know that? Because these people saw the fire of God come from heaven and consume that sacrifice. They saw Baal humiliated. They saw him set apart and stripped of all dignity. And they saw God rise and demonstrate his power. But nothing changed. You would have thought that Ahab and Jezebel would have repented. They were the most wicked kings to have ever sat on the throne of Israel. They did more to anger the heart of God than any other king before them. But nothing changed. Jezebel just got angry and said, may my gods do to me and more if I don't make your life like one of those by this time tomorrow. Instead, we've got a man of God who has heard his voice, has obeyed his voice, has been diligent in serving faithfully the ministry that God had called him to, but yet nothing changed in the heart of the people. Even God showed up and demonstrated his power, but nothing changed. That is probably the most discouraging thing for me in ministry, is to see God move and feel God move, but to have people sit like they've been hit with a wet fish. With no change, no, no transformation in their life. It's a sad day. You know, I'm not going to embarrass Tyler, but I see Tyler sitting over here to my right. 19-year-old young man. He gave his life to Jesus about two months ago. Tyler, I think, wasn't it? Two months ago. 
fine young man, hungry for God, loves God, seeking God, serving in our, our Hope Cafe to the less fortunate people in our city, comes along with a smile on his face because Jesus got into his heart and Jesus did something in his heart and Jesus changed his heart. Miracles won't do that. It's the power and presence of God in our heart. It's the word of God to our life. And I, you know, I want to encourage you to keep pray for the, praying for this young man. Keep praying for him because God's got his hand on his life and he's going forward and leap. I don't know what God's got in store for you, Tyler, but it's good. It's good. Miracles won't do it. It's the word of God. So, so what happens between the demonstration and the depression? Nothing had happened. Elijah was confronted with unmet expectation. He honestly believed there would be a change in the spiritual and political climate of his nation, but nothing changed. The people get up. The Lord, he is God. The emotion of that lasted less than 24 hours. And they went back to the same old, same old. There wasn't even a small group of people in the, in the local capital, Jezreel, placarding, we want God back. We want, what do we want? God, when do we want him? Now. It's like, there was, wasn't even that. And he sits back and thought, well, that was a great show, but where's the fruit? Where's the changed lives? Where's the changed heart? Where's the changed people that... that should have come out of that. There was nothing. Instead, all, he, all we get is a servant of God in give-up mode and a contract out on his life. And this is where we see the kindness and the grace of God toward human weakness, toward human frailty, and toward discouragement. Let me say this to you before I just share a few things and then I'm going to wrap this up. When nothing is happening, it doesn't mean... Nothing is happening. Understand that. When nothing is happening in the natural, like you are wanting, hoping, expecting, desiring, does not mean nothing is happening behind the scenes with the purposes of God in and for your life. God is always moving. But here's the first thing God does. Elijah is empty he's drained he's in burnout mode he he needs he needs more than any natural thing could give him he takes off sacks his staff runs off to the mountain of god it's a long way from mount carmel all the way down through the nation of israel to mount sinai where moses met with god it's a long way it took him six weeks on foot to get there and he gets down there and before he goes, this is the first thing that happens. He sacks his staff, goes on ahead on his own, finds a tree, sits down under the tree, prays that God will kill him, and then falls asleep. Here's the first thing God does. He sends an angel. He sends an angel. The angel touches him, and the angel cooks for him. It's the first thing God does. I find that really interesting. It's interesting Elijah isn't rebuked for his condition. Elijah isn't rebuked for his attitude, for his frame of mind, for his lack of faith. He's not rebuked for his overwhelming depression. You know, God is not like a lot of Christians. 
Absolutely. God is not like a lot of Christians who want to go down their troubleshooting list. Well, have you, have you rebuked the devil? Have you been pleading the blood over your family, over your life, over your car, over your house, over your bed, over your, over your fire? Have you been pleading the blood? Have you, have you been doing that? Have you been praying enough? You know? Have you been reading the word enough? Because it's a spiritual problem. You know, when, when we hit the wall, it's not always a spiritual problem. It can be, and I'm not saying it's not. That's why we need discernment. That's why we first need compassion before we need to give our opinion. The first thing the angel does is he touches him. God understands our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailties. He knows we get tired. He knows we get discouraged. He knows we get disappointed. He knows that we struggle. He understands it. And when Jesus eventually came, he understood it even more because he became like one of us and experienced all those emotions himself. And that's why we have such a great high priest who who can empathize and understands what we feel when we feel it. The angel comes and he touches him. You know, one of the greatest human needs is, is touch. What I said earlier, and it's true, Gary Chapman's love languages. Mine is touch and words of affirmation. I went and bought a new pair of jeans this week. I wasn't looking for affirmation on my jeans. I bought a new pair of jeans this week. I've always taken a size 34. Always. Never gone up, never gone down. I put on weight, but it hangs over. You know, so it's like... Come on, you all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it, it hangs over. But I've never gone up, I've never gone up. I've always had size 34. And I go in to the shop and I find a pair of jeans I like and I, I ask, I, I need a size 34. I go into the change room, I put them on and they're too loose. Yes. And I went out and I said, I said to the lady, I said, are you sure these are a 34? She said, no, they're definitely a 34. I said, well, they're too loose. Have you got a 33? She said, oh, no, it only goes down to a 32. I thought, that'll never fit. She said, I'll get you a pair and you can try them. They fit perfectly. These are a 32. (laughs) They are a 32. And the girl is affirming me, saying, oh, you must be losing weight. You you must be doing something right. And I'm feeling really, I've got the, wait till I tell Margot, I've dropped to 32. I've never dropped to a 32. So I go home and tell Margot. I might tell Margot. It's a mistake on the jeans. <laughs> she said, they're not a 32. They're a, they'll be a 34. You've always taken 30. I said, no, 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 no. The 34s didn't fit. These are a 32. It's on the jeans. It's written three and a two. That says 32. And No, it's a mistake. There's something wrong with it. Like, words of effort. I could feel myself sinking. I could feel my heart just going into the floor and it's... But words of affirmation and touch. You, you know, when I'm sitting with my wife, if she reaches over and puts a hand on my knee, that's all she has to do. I feel so loved. You might go, oh, you know, it's like, you know, man, what a wuss this guy is. It's like, no, but it's just the way, it's the way I'm wired. She touches me, you know, and it's interesting. That's the first thing God does to Elijah when, this thing's turning off on me, Arden, it just won't stay on. <laughs> I need, a, I need a hands-free mic. Maybe we can get one of those. Um, you know, the first thing God does is touch him. You know, I was, I was, what? Words of affirmation? Yeah, words of affirmation. This is a good hands-free mic, and you've done a fantastic job this morning down the back there. I was reading Mark chapter 1 this week, 
The last few verses of Mark chapter 1, a leper came to Jesus. Falls before him and says, if you're willing, you can make me whole. To be a leper in those days wasn't the most pleasant thing. You were ostracized. You were isolated. You weren't allowed to come into the city. You had to stay outside the city walls. You had to, wherever you went, if people were around, you had to cry out, unclean, unclean. You had to wear a sign on your chest saying, I'm a leper, don't come near me. And they were, they were robbed of human touch and love and, and care. And this leper comes to Jesus and falls down. I can imagine the crowd spread very quickly and it was just Jesus and the leper left there. And as I read it, he said, if you're willing... You can make me whole. Jesus reached out and touched him. <laughs> he didn't say, he, like some people Jesus healed without touching them. But this one, no, he reached out and touched him. I, I wonder whether this guy was just so lonely, so isolated, so empty of human love and affection and so broken on the inside that he just needed somebody to touch him and say, I love you and I care about you and it's okay that you're in the situation you're in. It doesn't bother me. I, and Jesus reached out and touched him. Sometimes, folks, people around you that are doing it tough don't need your seven steps to break through. They don't need your seven ladders to how to get out of the hole they are in. Sometimes they just need a hug. Sometimes they just need you to put your arms around them and say, I'm here for you. I love you. Don't tell them, you know, what they're doing wrong. Don't try and diagnose it with some spiritual answer. Sometimes they just need a hug. And again, it might be a spiritual thing they need. But let us touch first. Let us talk first. Let us get together first before we can perhaps try and diagnose what's going on in a person's life. The first thing he does is he sends an angel. He sends an angel. Elijah is simply tired. He's exhausted. He's run down. He's broken. You know, there are times the old King James says he woke up and there was an angel with an open fire, cooking a cake. He ate the cake, and then he lay down again. So he slept. The angel touches him, wakes him up, says, come on, have some chocolate cake. He eats some chocolate cake with King Island double cream running all down the sides of it. He says, come on, mate. Tuck in. <laughs> now, if I was Elijah, it wouldn't have been a chocolate cake because I don't eat sweets much. I just don't like sweets. It would have been one of those big family size pizzas with double pepperoni and uh, Kalamata olives. And he would have said, come on, mate, have some pizza. Sit down. <laughs> it cooks for him. Sometimes when you hit the wall, you've been faithful, you've been serving, you've been going the whole way so hard and you just get tired. Sometimes you just need to take a break, eat a cake, have a rest. Not the whole cake, a piece of cake. Don't eat the whole cake, whatever you do. But sometimes you just need to take a break, eat a cake and have a rest. That's what Elijah needed. Sometimes that will fix your perspective. 
on what you're facing. Sometimes that's enough to even stop you having to go to a doctor and get whatever it is. Sometimes your body just needs to recover. And God knows our frame. He knows we are but dust. So he says, take a break. Open your stamp album up. If that's your hobby. (laughs) It's not mine. John Smack, are you still into stamps? He is. John always been a stamp collector and a coin collector. He's probably got a lot, a lot of money's worth of stamps and coins these days. And I used to laugh at him behind his back. Stamps and coins, get a grip, get a real Bobby, get something really good. For me, take a break, ride my motorbike, have a rest. So he got up, he ate, and he lay down again. And then after he'd slept a few more hours and the angel patiently just sat there and waited, just like you might sit by a hospital bed, he probably sat there and knitted if he was a female angel. If he was a male angel, he probably had the local newspaper and he just sat and he read that. Oh, I can hear him stirring again. Come on, mate, get up. I've got something else cooking here. He got up and he ate and he said, look, look, he said, you've got a journey ahead. You need to move forward. And sometimes that's what we, we need to do. Take a break. You know, we live and function in a physical world. Sometimes you don't need a lecture. You just need a walk by the lake, bucket of KFC, (laughs) and a good sleep in. (laughs) It can do wonders. Believe me, it can do wonders. Second thing, look, watch this. I'm going to wrap this up very quick. Second thing God does is he allows Elijah to vomit. He goes, he runs six weeks. He goes to Mount Sinai. He gets there. And God's there. And God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Whenever God asks you a question, it's not because he needs an answer. He knows the answer. It's for your benefit. It's for you to stop and assess. It's for you, perhaps, to get things off your chest. What, like like when, when he arrived, it wasn't like when God said, it wasn't, what are you doing here, Elijah? It, what happened? Look at your son. You look awful. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. It was just, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then Elijah has a spew. He says in chapter t- uh, verse 10 of chapter 19, Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. In effect, what he was saying to God was, I executed your plan perfectly. What happened to you? I've been there. And so have you. We've all been there. I've done this diligently. I've done this faithfully. God, what happened to you? You didn't come through. You didn't do what I thought you would do. You know, and, and, and that's okay. Sometimes we just need to pour it out before God. Just have a good vomit. Just let it out there. Because God understands our weaknesses. But then when we've had a good vomit, the next thing God does, he gently draws him and says, you need to come into my presence. You need to come into my presence. You need to take time out in my word. And you need to draw aside and hear my voice. You need to replenish your soul, your inner man. And in essence, when you read that, miracles won't change people's hearts. Demonstrative supernatural outbursts will not change a person's inner attitude. Only the word of God will do that. Only the voice of God will do that. And so God comes again and there's a massive windstorm and he unsettles the rocks and it was like, whoa. But God wasn't in that. 
And then an earthquake comes, and it's so destabilizing, but God wasn't in that. And then there's some kind of a fire, and I don't know what kind of fire it was, but it was some kind of an explosive fire, but God wasn't in this uh, fire. But then all of a sudden there is a gentle, still, small voice, and Elijah covered his face. The presence of God came. The presence of God flooded in, and the Lord began to reveal to Elijah that what happened on Mount Carmel was only a small part of a far greater divine plan. What's happening in your life right now? Let me tell you something. Don't, don't stare at your navel and go, why isn't this happening? Why isn't that happening? Just surrender and say, God, I'm a part of your plan. You're ordering my steps. And no matter what takes place in my life, I will just be faithful to what you've called me to do and let you worry about the outcome. You see, God begins to speak to Elijah and says to Elijah, there is far more happening here than you understand or realize. Elijah, you are not the only one left. Elijah, there are 7,000 others who have never bowed down or kissed Baal. Elijah, there are 7,000 others who are still faithful. You just don't see them. And because you don't see them doesn't mean they're not there. When nothing's happening, it doesn't mean nothing is happening. He goes on and he begins to give him guidance. When you leave here, Elijah, I want you to go here and anoint this guy to be king there, anoint that guy to be king there, and there's a young man plowing a field by the name of Elisha. He's going to be your successor, and I need you now to make this season about raising your successor and releasing him to do even greater things. This is not just about getting Ahab and Jezebel to repent. This is not just about an immediate revival that will just change a city. There's a bigger plan happening here in your life, and when things aren't happening the way you'd like to make you come, comfortable, get your eyes off yourself and look to the bigger plan. Because God is always doing something so much greater. He was setting the stage for a new political day, and we have to be content with that. Our, our heart, our, our, our role, our job, our responsibility is to hear and to obey. To hear and to obey. And we have to stop looking at our Christianity about what's God going to do for me. I need him to fix this. I need him to fix that. I need him to change that. I need him to address that. I need him to work that out. I need to make that. And it's all about making me feel better. It's all about making me more comfortable. But we are a part of a mission in this world. God is doing a far greater thing. And there are people out there who do not have anywhere near what we have found in Jesus who still need to find it. And I do believe that through our church, we're going to be influencing far further afield than we've ever imagined. And it will take commitment. It'll take hard work. It'll take resource. It'll take people locking arms together. And not just about how can we make this church bigger, but how can we have a greater influence through our church, through somebody else, to somebody else. We've been supporting Robbie Housen now for I don't know how many years, long, like since 2000 really, since I went over and first met her and her late husband, Jeff. And we've been sewing in and sewing in and sewing in. And most of you wouldn't even know that. But yet the impact of that ministry has raised up this man, Jonas, who I'm going to ask you to come and just join me for a few minutes on the platform. Have we got another mic we can use there? And... Um, This great young man is, uh, is doing a fantastic job. And, uh, you know, he, he is the fruit, 
part of the fruit of our missions program, part of the fruit of our serving God and being faithful in our giving towards what's happening over there in Mozambique. Jonas, I want you to tell us, your church started, we had lunch on Friday, your church started in 2004, 2006. So it's been going 10 years this year. And you came out of, of the, the Bible school in Beira, and you're planting this church in Beira. Tell us a little bit about that church and your journey. Well, we started the church in 2006, and the church is called the New Generation Center. So I like it like a New Generation City Church. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we started in town. God spoke to me that you, at the time I was involved in the Bible school as a teacher, and uh, the Lord spoke to me two years prior before that. And through some situations, and I got to the point that we had to start the church in 2006. We started with the five adults and two kids. We started writing, God opened a door for us to have the church right in the city. That's where we started the square. And the, the place, we, there were two churches meeting at the same place, and it was not feasible for us. We got another hall at the English school, and then we moved to another place. And by God's grace, we managed to get a tent because we were very nomadic. And we got to a place that we put out a tent, and that's where we've been meeting. And three years ago, the tent got too small for us, and we've grown. The tent could hold maybe 100 people, 90, but we went beyond that. So we had to build a shed so that we can gather. So I'm involved with that church. From the same church, I planted two churches. That's around the city of Beira. And outside of Beira, we have about three churches, one in Shimoyo, which is Manika province, for those of you who know Mozambique, and another one in Nampula, and the third church out of Beira in Maputo, which is our capital. Yeah. So. So you had you had a tent and it was damaged, wasn't it? Yes, because of the wind and uh, it became too small, so the tent was not useful anymore. Yeah, and so you are on <laughs> land at the moment that is not yours. Yes. So there's no yes. great security there for you. No. You could be shifted at any Anytime, point. Yes. And at the moment you are looking to buy land. Yes, we are. And build your own building. Yes. And you were sharing with me on Friday that land is not scarce. Yes. Land is plentiful. Yes. But it's expensive. It is. And it's very hard for them to secure. Yeah. Now, there is a block of land they've been looking at, but it's not big enough for them. Yeah. It's 170,000 metical. I crunched the numbers through the week. It equates to $3,500. I... There's land that they would like that's twice the size of that, which may equate to $7,000, who knows. But yeah. um, I, I just have a sense we're going to be able to help you with some of that. Amen. Thank you. I really have a sense as a church. I, I went to lunch with you on Friday very prayerfully, and I asked you specific questions about your ministry because I'm... I'm really asking the Lord what connections is he wanting us to make at this particular point in time. And I'm not sure what it will look like, but I just have a sense we're going to be able to partner a little bit with you and help you as a church. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of us visit you at some point. Amen. Yeah. And so um, the thing I love about this young man is that to think I was there 16 years ago lecturing in the Bible school 
And he remembers what I spoke on. I have no <laughs> idea. I have no memory. Some of the things he told me I wrote down, I thought that'd make a good message. <laughs> so, but, you know, he remembers me being there and 16 years later, he's graduated, he's planted this church and he's been going 10 years now. Yes. And uh, so he obviously, when he graduated from Bible college, when I was over there 16 years ago, he was still a student going through, he's graduated. Yes. You then did some lecturing in the same Bible yes, college. I did. And then eventually yes. went out in, 10 years ago yes. and started the church. I just have a sense, folks, that we could help them get some land and get them started with their building. I think that could be a good thing. Thanks for sharing that with us. Why don't you put your hands together for this great man. Fantastic. God is so good. And uh, like I said, we're just still prayerfully unpacking that word from Steve McCracken and what it could look like. And I don't know whether this connection is a part of that. It may very well be. Um, but I just feel like as a church we could do something to help this this church do something really significant. See, we go looking for miracles and we want the big miracle and we go, oh, let's take up an offering. Oh, we raised $3,500. Yeah, that's not really a miracle. It's not a miracle, is it? We could take up an offering here in a heartbeat and raise $3,500. I'm not going to do that, so don't, don't panic. There's no offering coming. But we could take up an offering and raise $3,500. You go, oh, yeah, that's good, generous church, that's great. But if we did that and sent that to a place like Mozambique, to them, that's a miracle. That's like, how did we get so much money so fast? We can be the answer to someone else's prayer. And I think that's what God wants us to be as a church. Let's take our eyes off ourselves. Let's pace ourselves. When we get tired, take a break, eat a cake, have a rest. Don't be afraid to just have a good vomit before God. But let him speak into your situation and remind you that we are a part of a very big divine plan. We are a part of that. And when we all lock arms together, it's not about the few doing all the work. It's about everybody. And we can make a mighty force for Jesus across our country. Let's stand together.